0: Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com.
1: And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor for ETF.com.
0: This week, we're talking with Sean O'Hara, President of Pacer.
1: All right, Sean, how are you doing? Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate
1: it. We want to kick it off here with you giving us a little bit of a big picture overview of Pacer. Uh, you guys got quite the lineup of ETFs. Uh, Maybe give us a a breakdown if you would, Sean.
2: Yeah. So we're, I guess, just a hair under 39 billion right now. We finished the year last year with around 35 billion. So we've gotten off to a pretty good start. Um, We went from 20 to 35 the year before that. So we continue to grow at a really, I think, phenomenal rate, to be honest with you. Um, if you think back to our roots and and sort of what we think we really are all about, you know, we're we're based just outside of uh, Philadelphia in a town called Malvern, Pennsylvania, which is also the hometown of another big ETF company. They're a oh, big, yeah. it's called Vanguard. <laughs> uh, so they're our neighbor. And so when we sort of had this crazy idea that we were going to start our own ETF company, we were doing so sort of in the shadows of that. And so we knew we really couldn't compete with them on what they do, right? What they do really well, we think, is sort of this low-cost beta, you know, replication strategies, take an existing index, wrap it in an ETF. Um, and, you know, really the big part of the ETF marketplace is controlled by three folks like Vanguard, uh, that that's what they do. And so we thought, you know, where do we think we fit and what do we want to be? And so we, we kept going back to three words, innovative, disruptive, or unique, Mm-hmm. We wanted to build ETFs that were um, different, that had an objective in mind that was different than things that were out there that either added alpha uh, or that managed risk to the downside. And so everything we do and everything we launch and everything we build here at Pacer ETFs has a client at the end of the day and their use case in mind um, that, so that it could be valuable to a financial advisor um, in terms of including it in their client portfolios.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the lineup though if you would uh you know kind of broadly we're going to get into some specific ETFs but I mean you have three broad categories right or maybe more than three uh risk mitigation uh, high quality value growth and thematic four broad categories right
2: yeah so we we started um initially with a suite of risk mitigation ETFs that continue to to perform well called trend pilots that just simply employ the technical indicator, the 200-day simple moving average and and overlay that on, you know, like the S&P 500 or mm-hmm. the NASDAQ 100. And the idea there is that, you know, the 200-day moving average has been used for, you know, ever um, as a sort of entry exit point. And so the, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole design around that was that, you know, if the 200-day moving average is above the index, then that means that um, you know, we're going to own the equities. And when it falls below, we're going to start to move above the index price. We're going to own the equities. and it falls below, we're going to start to move to T-bills with a, the, the sole objective of just providing some risk management to the downside. We mm-hmm. have a series of buffered ETFs as well that sort of are in that same vein. We have some income strategies. And as you mentioned, we have the the cows strategies, which has been a very, very successful for us. And we'll continue to build but well, we like to build things like in suites or silos, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you understand the idea behind the 200-day moving average, then you just have to say, you know, do I want to do it on large cap? Do I want to do it on Nasdaq mid cap, international, Europe? Uh, if I like the cow story because it relies on free cash flow and free cash flow yield, do I want to do large, small, global, international? So, we like to sort of have one main story or one main idea at the top, and then multiple right. ones for people to use it.
1: I want to stay on the uh, the the trend pilot for a minute here now. Is this using the the 200-day and the the 50-day, the normal to see a what they call, what do they call it, a, a devil's death, cross the, and a golden death cross.
2: cross? Yeah, no, it's just simply yeah. the 200-day moving average. So we track okay. the level of the index versus its 200-day moving average. And the theory is that when, when the level of the index is above its 200-day moving average, that means that prices are moving up faster than the averages. So that's a positive trend, right? Uh-huh. When things reverse themselves and the 200-day moving, the index falls below its 200-day moving average, it means that that prices are trending negatively, if you mm-hmm. know. And so we use that, and a lot of people use have been using that for a while. And if you sort of look at it, I mean, like PTLC is the large cap. That's the S&P 500. The last three years, PTLC has delivered uh, slightly better returns than the S&P 500 by itself. But mm-hmm. in 2022, when the market sort of got clobbered, it was down 8% yeah, so for people who are looking for you know <laughs> equity participation over time but don't necessarily feel like they have the stomach to ride the market all the way to the bottom and stay in all the time. So a strategy like that can be pretty mm-hmm. easy.
1: Some people might call these timing strategies. do you uh, do you frown on
2: that? I do. Uh, because timing strategies, uh, I, I don't think over time really work. These are more mm-hmm. long term trend following strategies as opposed to timing. We mm-hmm. because we're using the 200day moving average, uh, we're taking a slightly longer view. Like you know, if it was using a 10 day moving average, I would say it would be more like a trading and a timing strategy. Okay. But, but trend following as a as an asset class has been utilized for you know decades right. and decades and decades. You,
1: I got one more thing for you on this particular topic, and then I'm gonna we'll pop, pass it over to Sumit. But whenever I see these kinds of strategies, Sean, I look at it and I think look look at PTLC for example it's 60 basis points what's stopping somebody from buying the S&P on their own for you know 4 basis points and doing the same thing
2: Three things really taxes number 1 cost to switch number 2 and then we're human beings And so having something <laughs> rules having something rules based and you know I'm a human being too and so sometimes I'll look at the trend pilots and I'll say you know, you know, why are we in equities? It just seems like things are really expensive or why are we moving halfway out today? Because, you know, but that human element is what gets you in trouble. Yeah. So something that's 100% rules-based that can shift exposures via the ETF wrapper without taxation um, and then can do so at a far better price than somebody could buy the two component parts and, and do it on their own. To me, makes the package worthwhile.
1: You're right. Good point. It's, uh, that's worth the extra basis points.
0: John, the trend pilots are super interesting, but I want to turn to another suite of ETFs that you have. And it really seems to me that these are your golden gooses, the cash cow ETFs. They've accumulated billions upon billions of dollars. Even this year, we'll talk about CAF. That's accumulated almost $1.7 billion of inflows. Why have these resonated so much with investors?
2: Um, So uh, they fit in what we think is the value sleeve of an investor's portfolio, number one. Number two is traditionally in an asset allocation model, you know, people are going to always be allocated to a certain amount of value. Um, And three, value has been disappointing. And we think that the reason that value has been disappointing is that the fundamental underpinnings of what value is based on are not necessarily as relevant today as they once were. For example, um if you looked at the Russell 1000 value index the only input to determine what stocks go in that index which would ultimately be in the ETF with the ticker IWD if you wanted to buy a value ETF is that it's it's low price to book that's it and so if you go back and study the academic work on you know how people look at things and you look at the seminal work done by Fama and French in the 90s that they got a Nobel prize for their initial work had some some data in there that said that if you just bought low price to book stocks versus high price to book stocks over time, you would do much better. Uh, And that they looked at three decades and it was like not 25 basis points or 50 basis points, it was pretty significant. And that's what people sort of latched onto. And so why value is a part of people's portfolio and, and we use terms like the value premium, if you will. Unfortunately, that same approach the last three decades plus has not worked at all. It's delivered zero excess return. And we think at Pacer, we discovered why, and we found a more relevant way to determine what should be considered value. What changed is the market value of U.S. stocks. In the 70s, we were very, very heavy tangible asset uh, in in terms of the overall stock valuation. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 83% of stock prices were dependent on tangible assets, things you can see, touch, feel, pick up, put a price tag on, and only 17% were intangible. It would be a value price to book person's uh, heyday, right? Tell me what the book value of the company is. Tell me what the current stock price is. If I think there's a disconnect that I can exploit, I'll buy the stock. Well, today, ninety percent plus of the stock market's value is based on intangible assets. Those are things you can't see, touch, feel, put a price tag on. Think of a name like Google, for example. Even though it wouldn't necessarily make it into the cows, we have owned Apple. But what are those companies worth? Is, is Google worth what the sum total of all the servers, servers and the data centers that they operate are, or are they worth? the intellectual property that Google utilizes to generate revenue. They invented, refined, perfected, and monetized search. So in a a world where there's no real tangible value left, you can't rely on price-to-book to spot cheap stocks. So we use free cash flow yield, which is the free cash flow that a company generates divided by its enterprise value. So it's a simple calculation. What would I have to pay to buy the whole thing? Stock plus debt minus cash. And if I did that, how much cash return would I get every year for that? So if you had two stocks that say had an enterprise value of 20 bucks, one was giving you a dollar's worth of free cash flow, you could simply say, I'm going to divide that dollar by 20 and come up with a 5% free cash flow yield. If I had another stock with a $20 enterprise value was giving me $2 worth of free cash flow, I could divide that $2 by 20. That one would be giving me a 10% free cash flow yield. And our argument is that I'd rather pay $20 to get $2 worth of free cash flow as opposed to one. And so we've applied that to broad indexes like the Russell 1000 and the S&P 600. And the launch date of that was about eight years ago. So it was a theoretical concept, if you will, that we thought would be a more meaningful, more relevant, or more timely way to look at valuing stocks when when there's just not that much tangible asset value left. And in truth, what happened was exactly what we thought would happen, which is it delivered pretty significant excess return versus the benchmark. Um, and so I think that's contributed to the success. I think what contributes to the ses- success is that it's a pretty simple story and it's easy to understand. The world has changed. We have offshored all the manufacturing, we've gone globalist, right? And so out in the seventies, when we had all these factories, you could have tangible book value today, you really can. And so we have been able to successfully sort of exploit, if you will, that new way to think about value. And it's done what we would have expected it to do based on its, the research and, and the testing that we did. And so we've had tremendous success with it. And I think one of the other things that you know that I think must be noted is that we have a, a very, very strong distribution effort here at Pacer. So we have 79 external wholesalers that go out and call on financial advisors all day long. And that's a big number compared to some other folks um, in the industry. And so we sort of, you know, we do the hard work, if you will. And so we've had a lot of success there. I know we're going to talk about things that are coming sort of at some point, but we think we can exploit the growth side of the ledger just as much in a different way. And maybe we'll get to talk about that. But I know you want to talk about CAF. So I'll pause there.
0: Yeah, yeah, Sean. So you, you make a compelling case that the traditional value indexes and traditional value ETFs are almost obsolete in a sense, because price to book just doesn't work as well anymore. But I really do want to talk about CAF, which has been this year's breakout star for you. I think it has $1.7 billion in inflows. Why is this ETF suddenly taking off?
2: Because the story on CAF is very timely right now. A lot of market people are calling for you know allocation of small cap because they've lagged for so long. There's no question that that's the case, right? We're always going to own some small cap. But maybe we've been underweight just because we've had so much large cap, it's squeezed it down in terms of weight in the portfolio. But when you look at small cap names in this environment, and then you look at the small cap approach that we take, two different stories emerge. For example, when you look at the S&P 600 as an example, somewhere around 25% to 30% of all the names in that index don't make any money. And secondarily, um, small cap stocks are more highly levered than large cap stocks, and they get their debt financing differently. They don't generally issue debt, they borrow money from banks, and they borrow money on these 90-day facilities. And so as interest rates have risen, because the Fed is trying to destroy the economy, I'm sorry, no, they're not trying to destroy the economy, they're trying to tame inflation by destroying the economy. Um, That's put more and more pressure on the small cap stocks, because the cost of financing has gone up. So if you look at, for example, right now, net debt to EBITDA on small cap names is like 2.9, it's about 1.4 for the S&P 500. And CAF, because we screen explicitly for free cash flow and free cash flow yield, and because we eliminate all the names in those indexes that don't make money, is trading at a debt-to-EBITDA debt multiple that's less than the S&P 500. And then when you look at interest expense as a percentage of EBITDA, right now the s and is like 8 to 9%. You're talking about 20 to 25% in small cap land, and CAF is under the S&P 500 right now. It's about 8%. So if you're going to buy small caps, we would argue that it makes more sense to buy small caps that, you know, don't buy the whole index. I mean, nobody knows the names of them in there anyway, for the most part, right? Isolate the index and only pull out the names you want based on what you're looking for. And what we're looking for is high quality companies that generate a lot of free cash flow, that have a high free cash flow yield, that aren't overly reliant on debt to get things done. And um What's interesting about free cash flow and free cash flow yield as a screen is it doesn't matter where you apply it, large, small, global, international, the same characteristics continue to emerge. You get better earnings growth in your benchmark. You get a higher current return on investment in the form of free cash flow yield. And typically we pay about 60 percent of the market's P.E. But in particular, in this cycle, with everybody talking about small cap, if you explain to people how the broad broad based small cap indexes work, and you enlighten them on what the real problem is, which is the debts getting out of control, then the logical choice would be to buy something that doesn't you know that isn't broad based that's screening out the names that could be problematic
0: and I should note that CAF is trading close to an all-time high right now, which is important because the Russell 2000, as a lot of people have pointed out, is close to twenty percent down from its all-time high, so quite a significant difference in terms of performance between. The Russell and Gap,
2: absolutely.
1: Sean, who is who do you think is buying, or who do you know is buying your ETFs? So is Pacer more popular with financial advisors or the retail market, or is it kind of an even breakdown?
2: That's a great question. I think the answer is that it's almost exclusively financial advisor driven. That's where we spend our time. Um, mm-hmm. We don't spend money advertising to direct to the public. We we think. Uh, based on, you know, I've been doing this almost 40 years now, and my partner has been doing it longer than that. We think that the financial advisor model adds value to the individual investor's experience over time. Mm -hmm. And so we don't mind if somebody who's doing it on their own buys our stuff, but we would rather put all of our effort into helping the financial advisor understand what we do and who it helps and then help them, you know, deal with it and explain it to their, their end customer. So, I would say the vast majority of the money that we've taken in here has come ex- almost exclusively from financial advisors, and it's really sort of across the gamut from the you know mega warehouses all the way down to the individual right. registered investment advisor. And how
1: do right. you how do you connect with those advisors? How what are you doing for <laughs> them? Are you providing educational services or or what's the what's the connection look like?
2: We we do something really novel, Jeff. We go see them in person. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, man, don't let that secret get out.
2: I know. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. The industry is a funny industry. There's people in this business that think if you make a good product, people will find you. I don't think that's the case. I've been waiting 40 years for that to happen. Uh So we 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 rely on our distribution model and the people that we have across the country to go make appointments with financial advisors, sit down, find out what it is they do, what they're looking for where their mm-hmm. pain points are in their portfolios and how we might be able to help them with the PACER ETF. Have
1: Have you ever had any conversations that you know of with advisors and wholesalers where you actually will develop a product out of the conversations that you're having with them?
2: I, I, it has not happened yet. We have done a couple of partnerships with people who are um, asset managers by themselves who have kind of novel ideas, but we haven't actually gotten anything that we thought would be something like, you know, that would be When we build ETFs, Jeff, I mean, I don't want the best $25 million ETF in the history of mankind, right? I want Mm -hmm. multi-billion dollar products. And so oftentimes, if you talk to an individual advisor, they might have a great idea, but it might be only a great idea for them.
0: So Sean, we've talked about your trend pilot ETFs, and we've talked about your cash cow ETFs, which have pulled in billions upon billions of dollars. Which year ETFs that we haven't talked about Uh, Do you want to highlight, you know, is there an area that investors are starting to gravitate towards that are outside of the, you know, cash cow suite?
2: Yes. Um, You know, there's been a lot of focus lately on getting income from equity portfolios. And the way that's been done so far, very, very successfully, for example, by JP Morgan is through these covered call strategies like JEPI. Um, And so, you know, in this business, there are a lot of copycats. You know, when they see somebody having success, they say, well, if I made one of those, I'll be successful, too. And so there's lots and lots of people sort of going down that road. We don't necessarily think that's a road we want to go down, but we do think there's a need for investors to be able to generate attractive income from their equity portfolios. And we do that with an ETF, the ticker's QDPL, and it is an ETF that's designed to provide four times the yield of the S&P 500's dividend. And so that product is a fairly simple product. It's basically a combination of the S&P 500 and then T-bills. And then what we do is we use those T-bills as collateral to essentially acquire the additional dividend yield that we need through futures contracts. And it has delivered exactly what we would have expected. So like last year, if you've looked at, for example, one of the downsides to a covered call strategy, like something like JEPI, is that. a very attractive yield, but the market was up pretty substantially last year and it didn't have any appreciation. And that's because when you do covered call strategies, you're selling your upside away. QDPL, on the other hand, though, the S&P was up 26 and QDPL was up 24, but we delivered a 6.5% yield on top of that. And so we're really excited about that concept. That fund now is almost $300 million. It's growing every day. And it's gotten past that time where it's not not necessarily theoretical anymore. You know, like you launch something that's new and you have to explain it and people go, well, I don't know if this will work. When you look at what it's done, it's done exactly what it's supposed to, which is to deliver about 85% of the equity return to the S&P 500 and four times the income. And so we like that strategy a lot and it's picking up steam and and financial advisors seem to gravitate for it. And it's a great complement to a covered call strategy. And we think we'll turn that that approach into uh, a suite of products as well. They'll file additional versions on that on things maybe like the like the, the Nasdaq 100 or an international index where you can sort of get additional yield from an equity portfolio uh, without selling away all of your upside on the equity side.
1: Sean, what's on the drawing board? If you can give us a little hint of what's to come for Pacer, I don't know if you can talk about things that are in filing, but. Uh, you might be able to talk about some areas where you see some opportunities to expand the lineup. I mean, I love the trend pilot uh, strategies. Um, interesting to hear what you see about the covered call space. But um, are there areas where you think Pacer uh, still has some has some uh, space to grow?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we don't do covered calls, as I mentioned. We do dividend multipliers, and we'll right. do more of that for sure, right? Because we think that makes makes a lot of sense. I, I can talk about this because there's two, two versions out now and there'll be more to come. But on the growth side of the ledger, we think that, that there's potentially the same missed opportunity in terms of how broad indexes construct growth indexes. So one of the big inputs, for example, to the growth indexes is sales growth. And in theory, that sounds like it makes sense, right? You got companies growing sales a lot. That can't be a bad thing. Well, I could say, well, look at what happened to Peloton, right? They sold a lot of stuff, but they never figured out how to make any money. And so we the same folks who sort of put us onto free cash flow yield on the value side said, if you're going to do growth, do free cash flow margin. And free cash flow margin is the free cash flow a company generates divided by its sales. So Company has a lot of sales, turns into excess free cash flow. That means they're making money on it. Then they can recycle those excess free cash flow dollars into more sales growth. And so we mm-hmm. launched a large cap version of that COWG that's done, I think, pretty well relatively. If you took the first quarter of last year out when seven stocks you know, sort of went hyperbolic. Uh, but over time, the research that we have there would indicate that we think we're as right on that as we were on the cows side of things. So we have a large cap and a small cap version of that. The small cap's a little bit newer than the large cap, but we'll grow that suite out. I think I I mentioned we're going to grow the dividend multiplier suite out for sure. And then we're looking for, you know, sort of smart income ideas. You know, if there's a weakness that we have at Pacer, it's that we don't have a full lineup of fixed income solutions currently. We Mm -hmm. only have two fixed income ETFs. And, um, you know, so that means that we're walking past half the money in America every day to get to the equity money. Um, And but if you go back to what we started with, innovative, disruptive and unique, it's somewhat difficult in our view to find innovative or disruptive or unique ideas in the fixed income world. We're Mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to figure that out.
1: Okay, you've only got uh, three factor strategies. Where do you see opportunities there?
2: I think uh, we we could continue to grow that suite out as well. I mean, there's a two multi-factor versions, PALC and PAMC, and then there's a one dual factor, ALTl that's low vol, high beta. Um, you know, I could see that sort of you know going beyond the large cap and getting into mid or small cap or international um, as as a way to sort of look at things we have a leader series that I think we're going to, you know, spend some time on, you know, we have the tickers PEXL, PEXL, it's basically companies in the U S that have, you know, very high share of their overall sales and revenue that are exports, because if you think about it, I mean, the world's bigger than the United States, right? So if if, Mm -hmm. if you're you're taking advantage of that larger consumer base, um, you you should do well. And, And that's been, you know, it's, it's not where we would want it to be an AUM, but it's not going anywhere because it's a great idea. And then we have some other things that we're you know we're thinking about. There's index providers that are showing us things like you know, taking you know the leaders in each country. like if you uh-huh. think about Germany, like what are they known for? Well, they're known for, for automobiles, for example. And if you think about France, they're known for luxury goods and insurance. And if you think about Japan, what are they good at? And then just simply taking each one of those countries and just sort of saying, what are the three or four best uh, names in each one of those things that they're most known for? So we, you could call it a country leader strategy. Right. We love stuff like that because it's a great story, right? I mean, if you're going inter- to invest internationally, why not invest in the, in the companies internationally that, that are most known in that country for what they do the best?
1: And the last thing I want to ask you about is the the trend pilot series I I really love this series by the way but I'm kind of impressed at how many different versions you've created there where else could you go with that strategy
2: you know we won't ever do it uh, but a Bitcoin trend following strategy would probably be pretty cool to have but we're, we're not big <laughs> believers in the whole Bitcoin thing so we're probably just dinosaurs so um and then there are other sort of you know versions you could you could essentially take it to the sectors if you wanted to, perhaps. But you have okay. to be careful, though, Jeff, about you know, building a lot of products is a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's a good thing and it, and it provides more opportunities to tell stories. It's a bad thing and, and that you can get fairly distracted, right? And so that's why we like to put things in silos. So, you know, if, like if you know five basic stories here at Pacer, if, if you know of us and, and you know sort of what we do, with five basic stories, you, we, you, we can cover 45 different ETFs,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And so we tend to be thoughtful about, you know, getting too spread out. I don't want to have 75 ETFs that all do something different because it's really hard to tell 75 stories at the same time.
1: All right. Uh, really good stuff, Sean. I think we're probably going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much for taking the time and, and joining us today.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can
0: find this and all other Exchange Traded Friday's episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.